Well, good morning, everyone. One last Merry Christmas to you. Anybody have a good Christmas? We had, uh, I had definitely by far the quietest Christmas of my life, 55 of them now, and this one goes down as the quietest. Uh, it was our first time without any kids, which wasn't supposed to exactly be that way, but that's how it turned out. So the, you know, it was a little sad, but the upside was I just got to watch a ton of um, the Yule Log. <laughs> so that was real. And I watched the one with the cat, you know, roaming around. It was really cute. I just sat back and it pictured myself being at Pastor Bob's house, and it was so fun. Very relaxing, very good. So... Anyway, we are kind of uh, closing up Christmas this weekend. We still have our, our decorations, lights, and so forth. And uh, Luke is going to give us one final sort of uh, picture of the birth narrative, and we'll conclude that today. Now, as you have uh, become fully aware, Mary and Joseph have been on this absolute whirlwind of events. It has been really quite astounding. There were angels, and like that would probably be enough to count as uh, amazing. Uh, there have been miraculous pregnancies and uh, prophecies about their son, and then, of course, to take it to a whole nother level, not just a prophecy about, you know, your lives, but those prophecies are connected to God's biggest promises of all times. You know, that's rather stunning. And now, instead of just a small group of people, uh, the word about this is beginning to spread, and more and more people are experiencing this. And so last week, we, we kind of looked a little bit at the shepherds, and today we have another story, the last picture, really, if you will, of the Christmas story. We're going to dive in and kind of walk through that. Um, you might, you're going to want your notes nearby. My computer made it through half of the morning, the first service, so we'll see uh, how it goes here, but keep them nearby. So uh, Luke says, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Luke lets us know right off the bat, the child's born and, and right away, his parents are going to follow through. They're going to follow the instructions of the angels, and they're going to follow the instructions of the law of God, of the scriptures as well. And so Jesus is named what the angel told them to name him. Now, normally, parents have the right to, to name their children, and there was a lot, especially in the, in the Jewish culture, invested in that in terms of what that meant and all kinds of significant things. But God said, I'm naming this child. A lot of insight there into what he'll be. And uh, then on the eighth day, he's circumcised. They're going to follow the law of Moses. He was dedicated to the Lord as was required. And uh, it kind of reminds us as we think into the future about Jesus at one point being challenged and saying, oh, don't think I came to abolish the law. I came to pay attention to it and to fulfill the law. The other thing we see in this section is that uh, we kind of get confirmation once again that his, his parents are not well off. 
Now, Leviticus chapter 12 required that the, any firstborn was redeemed, that the first fruits of anything belong to God, including children. And so the first, thank you, right on cue. And so the firstborn has to be redeemed with a one-year-old lamb. But there was a provision, if you were poor, you could, I don't know if you could grab a couple pigeons out of the town square, but anyway, you could bring a couple just, you know, those little annoying pigeons instead of a lamb. So, again, we're cued in to the fact that, that they were poor. Now, they go into the temple for this, and they meet someone named Simeon. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Uh, We've seen in the past weeks that the the world's a mess. There's the Roman Empire, and they say they have peace, but it's really sort of a uh, a rough, cruel world. And uh, Israel is oppressed, and they're, they're captives, and the temple is a mess. You know, it's supposed to be a place of worship, but is it? Not sure. But we see Simeon, and it reminds us that there are people of faith. Simeon is called righteous and devout. He was able to uh, wear the, the title of righteous, and so we see he's, a, he's a, a child of Abraham. How is anyone declared righteous? Well, only by faith. Only by faith. But he is a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham. He's a man of faith. And it says he's devout. In other words, he, he's focused in his life and what he says and what he wants to do and what he concentrates on, on loving God. And that's what he's about. So we meet Simeon, and he has a passion. He has kind of a focal point in his life. It's described here as the consolation of Israel. So in Isaiah chapter 40, we see the, the promise the the Messiah will come and comfort God's people or console them. And so he's waiting for Messiah, the consolation of Israel. Imagine, imagine for a moment receiving a promise like that in your life and you hang around the temple. Imagine how, how it would kind of, well, not mess with your mind, but it would definitely do things, right? Because you'd be hanging out where, where people worshiped God and you'd be going there and, you know, you would see you'd see people that you'd known for 20 years. You know, I know someone over there, and I know those people really well. But then, like, someone you don't recognize would come in, and you know you're going to, sometime in your life, you're going to see Messiah. It'd be like, okay, I wonder, is that him? You know, I just think it would, it would do something really interesting to your life. And that's what Simeon is living with. He's had this promise, and he knows it will happen in his lifetime. The conclusion we come to is that he's probably a a fairly old man. He's been waiting a long time. Now, Simeon has a greeting for Mary and Joseph, and it says he was moved by the Spirit, and he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Why? Because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. No kidding, 
You know, marvel. It's just like Mary's pondering and Joseph's amazed and Mary's amazed. And I just keep thinking, you know, if the, if the marvel, if it was a muscle, it would be like exhausted, right? Just think of all the things they've been through. And, and once again, they marvel. Now, Simeon prays, and he starts off saying, Sovereign Lord, which is a really strong term for God. It's not used that many times. It's for a really strong leader, someone who's absolutely in control and powerful, and he addresses God in this way. Kind of makes sense as he's been waiting his whole life for this moment, and he's like, yes, God is in control. He does keep his promises. He says, Sovereign Lord, and he says, as you promised to me, you know what? I'm good. You could dismiss your servant. You made this. Uh, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to die. You know, I'm fulfilled. Why is that true? He says, it's because I've seen your salvation. Now, understand, he takes in his arms an eight-day-old baby boy. And in his, the wisdom that God has given him, He's able to call it what it is. He says, I'm looking at salvation. (laughs) See? And here's a little preview for, for us from Luke. Salvation is Christ plus nothing. I don't care what age he is, right? You're looking at Christ. You're looking at God's salvation. Amazing thing. It's him personally. He says a couple things about him. One is that he's the glory of Israel. Now, I think probably everyone around there in the, in the temple that day, and maybe everyone in Israel, they believed that, that the Messiah, when he came, he'd be for the glory of Israel. He'd be the most glorious king. He would bring glory to Israel. Israel would be glorious. We'd all be glory for you, glory for me, all living in glory, because it's the Messiah. That everyone embraced that concept. What was not as widely embraced was that he would be a light to the Gentiles. But the prophets spoke about it. One place was Isaiah chapter 49. God the Father speaking to his son, the king, the Messiah, says to him in this prophecy through the prophet Isaiah, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. You're going to do that, right? That's definitely a part of the agenda, right? But I'll also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, we don't know how clearly Simeon could see, but he knew that this was a part of the goal and the role for Messiah. And Luke knows the end of his book as well, that what Simeon says at the beginning of Jesus' life will continue right on through to the last chapter when he gives the Great Commission and says, you're going to take the gospel, the good news, into all nations. This is what he's about. And so the parents marvel at at what is said about him. But Simeon also has a bit of a warning. It's this great glowing stuff, but there's a little bit of a, a dark side. It says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon speaks to Jesus' parents. He says that uh, your child will be, will create the falling and rising of many. Some people will fall, 
Some people will be raised up. His mission will be a refining one. He will uh, he'll be about the gospel, and the gospel means good news, but it is good news presented out in front of a backdrop which is very dark. <laughs> uh, there, there is the first element of the gospel is bad news, right? It's sin. It's our sin that, that causes the need for the gospel. And so there is this refining. Makes me think of, uh, ahead about 18 chapters. Luke's in, or uh, Jesus is in conflict with some, some leaders. Uh, they're, they're rejecting the notion that he would be Messiah or king. And he pulls up this prophecy from the Old Testament and says, well, you know, it's just like the prophet said. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus says, you reject me, you reject who I claim to be, but the truth is I'm a stone and I'm actually the cornerstone. Everything that God does comes out from me. I'm the plumb line. I'm the starting. I'm the, I'm the corner. It all comes out from me, and it's all judged based on me. I'm the standard. I give the dimensions to everything that God is doing. And as a stone, you have two choices. Everyone will either trip over me or fall under me. And that's your choices. You can trip over me and have your pride broken and your, and, and your sin revealed, your heart of sin revealed. Or you can hold on to that. Deny that you have a problem with God. Hold on to your sin or say that it's something you can take care of yourself and you will fall under his judgment. There are only two options. He's the cornerstone. And so, as well, he will be a sign that's spoken against, Simeon says. And that, how, how true that proved to be, right? From, from the earliest days. He's just walking through farmland. He's just walking through a grain field. And he gets spoken against. He gets accused. He heals on the Sabbath. And they condemn him. Right through his ministry, there's someone finding fault with everything he does. Right down to his last dying breath when they're still mocking him. You know, do you ever find you're in a place and you... And you just feel like uh, everything's okay except Jesus. Like, you could have any form of spirituality or any little statue of any little God, and people would be like, good for you. Look at the little spiritual you. That's great. You know, as long as it's not Jesus, right? That would be bad. You know, don't think that that's something new or you're in a unique place. Simeon saw that coming a couple thousand years ago. It'd be a sign that's spoken against. And then these really kind of tough words, but true words, and something that maybe Mary needed to prepare for. He says to her, a sword will pierce your soul. Again, we don't know how clearly Simeon can see, but we know Luke sees what this means. That there would be a physical sword, and it would pierce the physical body of this baby one day on a cross. And it would not pierce Mary's body, but that sword would pierce her soul. See, he's a savior. And saviors save. And saving is costly. And Mary, it'll hurt. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's the work of God. 
but it's going to hurt too. And so Simeon concludes his message. It's getting a little heavy when up wanders someone else and meet Anna here. There was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Interesting that that Luke points out that she came from the tribe of Asher. Now, Asher was a, a northern tribe, one of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. They'd gone off into exile, and it was such a mess, such chaos, so many people killed, that the, the families were, you know, kind of ruined, and, and they were called the lost tribes because they kind of couldn't keep track anymore. You know, it's like my family tree only goes back to the exile because we're not even sure who we are kind of thing. But Anna knew who she was, and Luke knows who she is, and, and we kind of have this, see, it, it may be lost to you, but it's not lost on God. God knows who his people are. Here's another of the faithful remnant. And so you don't have to be like the prophet Elijah. Remember how he got all mopey, and he's all sad, and he thought he was the only one left, you know, the only person in the world who loves God anymore, you know. And God's like, no, 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 no. I've got, I have people of faith all over the place. And it's, it, it's easy for us to get like that. Well, not me. I'm really lucky. I get to be around that, all, you know, every day uh, at work. But maybe you go places where, where you feel like you're the only one who, who loves God, the only person at school, or the only person at work, or the only person in your family. And God says, you know what? I've got people. I've got people of faith. You just don't, don't get too far down. Look at Anna. Here she is coming out of the woodwork in the temple. And, and here she is coming up at the right moment. And we also hear this, this kind of interesting little, almost sidelight, seemingly, to her about her, her life. Now we see that she Apparently, she grew up, I don't know, we've been talking about Mary being possibly 14 years old or something. So, you know, same culture, Anna's 14, 15, I don't know, call her 18 or whatever you want. But she got married, then her husband, and she's married for seven years. And, uh, and then her husband tragically dies very young. And then she's a widow. Now, here's where the tricky thing, this could be translated one of two ways. She's a widow until she's 84 as the NIV says it. It could also be translated, or she's a widow for 84 years, which is even more stunning. And so we get this conclusion about, sorry, Anna, but either she was very old, as the NIV says, or she was really old, right? Those are your options for for Anna. She's getting up there. Now, Anna has a greeting as well. Verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She spoke about the child. Like Simeon, she recognized he was the Messiah. We're not sure how she did that. She might have just been listening to Simeon and might have been a friend of Simeon's. I mean, they're like two people of faith and they're at the temple all the time worshiping. They probably are on the same grow group. You know, they probably know each other. Maybe she's listening to Simeon. On the other hand, she's a prophet. Maybe God's identified him for her. Don't know, but she recognizes, like Simeon, that, that this child is the Christ. And like the shepherds, for her, that means he's something to talk about. <laughs> so you could just see her running around. Hey, 
hey, do you want to hear about this? Come over and see this child. I promise you, someday you're going to be so glad you came over here and just looked into the face of this child. Someday you're going to realize who he was and you're going to think back and you're going to be like, I saw the day he was, I saw him the day he was dedicated. He was just a little baby. I can't believe it. I saw Messiah and she's running around. Anyone, anyone want to listen? <laughs> and, and here she is talking about him like the shepherds. <clears throat> and then Luke gives us this conclusion. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And you can just feel them going, breathing, like, whew, we need a few normal days. You know, uh, angels are awesome, and all this talk is amazing, but wow, let's settle in here. And that is what happened. And he grew and was filled with wisdom and the grace of God. Next week, uh, Jesus will return to the temple as a 12-year-old, and we'll get to that. But that really concludes the Christmas narrative. But when I step back and, and uh, look at this uh, story, it's got so many amazing sort of aspects to it and little interesting tidbits. But there's a really obvious question in my mind when I look at what's happening, and I think about the fact that here we are at the, uh, at the temple, right? Now, the temple was the most sacred place in Israel. It was the, the center of worship. It was a place for spiritual leadership and, and teaching. It was, or, or should ideally have been, as Jesus said, a house of prayer, a place for those who love God, like Simeon and Anna, to gather and, and to seek God. It was, uh, at times, the, the kings would use it. They would call the nation together to assemble. All the tribes should come and assemble. Where would they assemble? At the temple, because the point was we're a nation before God, right? And this is where they would come. So you got the temple, right, in this story. That's the setting, and who do we have? Who's the main player? Well, we have the arrival of the Messiah, right? He's the, in the line of David. He's the king, the rightful king. He's a ruler. He's the one who will fulfill the great promises of God. So I ask you, what should that look like? See, I think if you had gone through Israel, even the, maybe the day before this event, and you had asked people, hey, what should it look like if the Messiah shows up at the temple? I think some people would have given you a, a pretty grand picture, right? Because the, the reality is, they actually had songs written for that occasion. They were actually, seemingly, supposedly, prepared for that. Psalm 72 is one of those songs that had been written for, for the coronation of a king, and ultimately, you can tell by the language, ultimately Messiah king, because you can see about how, how grand he is, not just any old king, not just any son of David, but the son of David. Listen to some of Psalm 72. This was meant to be sung at his entry. Endow the king with your justice, O God the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. Long may he live. And see, I just imagine, you know, the, the priest is reciting this and all the people come back with, long may he live, right? The whole assembly, long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. 
May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His name endure forever, right? May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. See, they were ready. They had the songs written. Luke, where's the high priest? Where are the Pharisees, the Sadducees? Where are the teachers of the law? Where are the people who memorized Psalm 72? The choirs who knew it, who practiced it, who rehearsed it. Where are the the trumpets and the fanfare? Where's the king calling for an assembly of the nation? Their absence is stunning. Where is King Herod, who should be saying, Ah, here at last is the rightful king. Come, my son, take the throne. Instead, we find in Matthew that King Herod is just on the verge of an absolutely horrific rage of of jealousy and, and violence. Let me tell you something. If Jesus showed up in the lobby and the greeters sent me a message like, hey, Jesus is here. Do you, do you, do you want anything from him? <laughs> like, I promise you one thing. This message would be over, right? Sermon's done. <laughs> I, I think I know, not always, but I know in that situation, I would know to shut up, right? I know who you'd want to hear from, right? This thing should be over. Jesus, come and teach us. None of that. Almost silent. Almost. Almost silent. His son, though, is recognized, is praised, is acknowledged by two voices of great faith and deep wisdom. See, if you needed a parade, you were really out of luck. If you needed to hear the trumpets to know the Messiah had arrived, it wasn't there. But if you were the kind of person who would be willing to listen to someone like Anna, (laughs) you wouldn't have missed him. He would have been there. You would have seen it. See, the absence of what should be said doesn't keep God from saying what absolutely must be said. Sometimes we we mess up. The leaders of that day, they, they missed it. They absolutely failed and got it wrong. But it didn't stop God from recognizing his son and having people there ready to do that. With the remainder of our time today, I want to think about who influences us. Who do you go to when you need some wisdom, when you're trying to make a decision? Who guides you the most? Who has the most influence in your mind and in your heart? I want to suggest that Simeon and Anna provide really good examples for us as we seek people 
to serve us and, and who God would provide for us. So several things I notice as we kind of search or we look for that voice of influence in our life that we could depend on. The first one that we see in Simeon and Anna is that they had consistency over a long time. Now, earlier this week, it, it was Wednesday, and uh, there was a, we had a rehearsal here for Wednesday uh, Christmas Eve services, and I was trying to get here, and uh, I'd been in Portland in the morning, and <clears throat> I needed some food really fast, and so I went for fast food, and it wasn't. And so I'm standing in the lobby, kind of waiting, and, uh, <clears throat> and I'm sorry if you think I'm nosy, but anyway, there was a guy behind me, he ordered, and then he was standing just a couple feet away, and so he was kind of maybe in his 20s, and then a, a woman maybe in her 50s walked in, and, and it was kind of like maybe his kindergarten teacher or like his mom's best friend from when he was five or, you know, childcare, something. You know, they had known each other in the past, and he's like, hey, do you recognize me? And she's like, oh, of course I recognize you, and they hug, and, and uh, <clears throat> they're going to talk for a minute. And I'm, anyway, I'm just standing right next to him, and she says, well, have you been staying out of trouble? And he says, yeah. Well, recently, and I just, I had to turn away and laugh. It was like the cutest thing, you know. It's like, he's like, yeah, I've been staying out of trouble. Well, don't look too far back. (laughs) It's like kind of recently. And I thought, well, good for him. For one thing, that's a good thing. If you've been staying out of trouble recently, that's good. I'm not going to take that away from him, right? That's a good thing. Not only that, he was honest that it had only been recently. So, you know, like, good for you. Two good for yous. And, uh, and yet, I'm, I'm thinking about this sermon, and I'm thinking about Simeon and Anna, and I'm thinking about who influences us. And, you know, it's like, don't know the guy, but good for you. I hope it keeps going, because when you're looking for someone to, to listen to, you're looking for some consistency. A, a, a little bit more than recently, would be good thing in terms of influencing your life. Simeon and Anna. Now, Simeon had this unique promise, and I think it kind of reflected a long-standing faith in his life, because here he is older, and he's still waiting. He's still trusting that God's going to do this thing. Now, Anna, we get this story about her, you know, the early marriage, and then the long time being a widow, and, you know, what's up with that? Why those details? I think it demonstrates her character for us. Now, what we know from the Bible is that as a a widow, and she would have been widowed probably in her 20s, you know, that she had every right to remarry, and she could have, and she could have remarried and been even still called righteous and devout. That was totally acceptable and okay, but she didn't do that. And I think her history just is something Luke uses to say, hey, don't even think for a second that this was anything other than a completely godly woman because, man, she poured every second of a long life into worshiping God, fasting, praying, worshiping at the temple, night and day, always there. If you were there, you'd see her there, that kind of thing. And it's like, there's just no doubt. And it's been going for a long time, consistent faith. Now, those, those leaders, those people in positions of, of power should have, should have recognized Messiah. They didn't. And yet, there were voices of influence on that day, Simeon and Anna, the power of long-standing faith. In James chapter 1, we see these instructions for us. 
may be familiar to you. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, here's how I understand uh, these words. He says that uh, you face different kinds of trials, and what you need to do is test your faith. Now, I don't think that's, um, oh, no, my faith feels weak. It's not like the testing, like the weakening of your faith, just the opposite. What he's saying is you want to choose to say things and do things that are based on faith. So you're stepping out, if I can use that that uh, idiom, you're stepping out in faith. I'm choosing to do something that I'm going to have to trust God for, and I'm testing my faith. I'm finding that it's dependable, right? And as you continue to do that and make choices in faith, and you step in different places into your life with what you're doing, and you find it's dependable, right? you're going to produce perseverance. You're going to produce the ability to continue to do that because you find that God proves faithful and he was worth trusting. And so you are to keep doing that. He goes on. Let perseverance, that process we're talking about, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, if you're someone who lacks Wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all. Now, sometimes I have thought of this passage as uh, God promising that, you know, oh, I'm stuck, I need something, I need some wisdom, and God, you know, wrap it up in a Christmas present and, and provide it to me. Now, I think God does that at times. You know, we just need some clarity, and he kind of gives us wisdom through someone, or we open to the right passage, or, you know, God just speaks to us and and he provides wisdom, but I don't think that's exactly what this is talking about. Notice here that persevering, continuing to trust God and find that he's dependable, persevering in that, as we've done that over and over ago, what we find is that we, we find maturity, right? And that we're not lacking anything. And that maturity includes wisdom, So if you lack wisdom, ask God. And in this passage, then, what would he do? He would ask you to continue to make choices that reflect that you trust him. Not this big zap, here's your answer, but start off in this process, and you will find as you develop perseverance, perseverance produces maturity, and maturity comes with the wisdom you asked for. This is about a life scope sequence kind of passage. I think it can apply in an individual need as well, but James is talking about the the scope of our life and that there is is a a wisdom to be achieved as Simeon and Anna had by by going the long haul, right? Sometimes we can uh, experience consistency as kind of a boring thing. You know, just work all the time. And, and yeah, at church, I call it being faithful. But at work, it's like one more day, right? Or, or serving other people. Or consistently giving. Or consistently interacting and supporting the group of people you, you do life with. And sometimes we can think like, oh, it's, 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 it keeps going. But what James is saying, oh, no, no, no. See, there's something being developed here that's a treasure, a richness. There is wisdom that comes with maturity that came from persevering. And if you're looking for who should influence your life, 
you might want to look for someone with some consistency over time. It's a good thing. Simeon and Anna were the people that God honored on that day and said, they will speak for me. There's no high priest, not a problem for me. Shame on them, but Simeon and Anna will speak. Now, here's the, here's the second thing. That would be devotion with intensity. Simeon, he was labeled devout. Anna, she's described as devout. Worship night and day, fasting and praying. Now, this uh, coming whatever day it is, Thursday must be, is, is the first. And so that's day one here at Gateway. I know it's one of those unusual day ones. It's on a holiday, and so people are already making dip and chips and cookies and all that stuff for you. So I understand that. But, but you know, there's a day before day one and a day after. You could fit something in somewhere. You want to be with family and celebrate and all that. But one of the purposes of day one to, to say we're going to pray some more and maybe overlay that with some fasting, the, at least the purpose for me is it, it's intensity. It's like, yeah, devotion to God, but I want to like get serious about this for a little while. Not just pray, but maybe pray a little more. Or, or like fasting puts a, a layer, <laughs> for me I shouldn't say it this way, puts a layer of pain on it, right? <laughs> of seriousness, of dedication, right? So that's day one coming up, and Simeon and Anna are living with that kind of stuff. Now, in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus walking, walking along, and large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and, and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Wow! No wonder he made people's heads turn, right? Jesus, seriously? Now, this passage, of course, isn't about family. He mentions it, but he's making a point. It's, it's hyperbole. He's trying to tell us how much devotion we need to give to him, right? Off the charts, huge love for Christ. That's what he's getting at. That's what is best for us. But what can we kind of on a, after we get the main point, learn about family? Well, we would know that he isn't really telling us to hate family, right? He's already been really clear. We're to love one another. Let me translate it this way for our, our, our purpose today in terms of influence. The best way to love your family is to love Christ more than your family. In fact, if you're going to have wisdom for the people around you, you're going to need more love for Christ than the people you hope to influence. And, this, and it works the other way around. If you're looking for someone to speak into your life, let me suggest you're best off finding someone who will love Jesus more than they love you. Right? I see several... Uh, I, I see us face different situations at times, people in relational conflict or breakups, children in trouble at school, legal disputes, and then I see the family around those people, the, the people really close to them. They tend to be really good at one thing and not so good at another thing. They're really good at empathy. They're really good at kind of emotional support. They're not so good at wisdom sometimes right? It's the same thing with some of the uh, professional relationships we need to have. Sometimes we need an attorney or a doctor or a counselor. They're all great. You know, that can be something you absolutely need and God provides, but there is a limit to the wisdom you can 
receive in those situations because those people are legally bound to be 100% on your side. Here's the problem with that. Sometimes the best thing, the thing that should happen, isn't the thing that's best for you, as we define best. (laughs) Who influences you? Let me suggest it's someone, if they really have the wisdom of God, it'll be someone who loves Christ more than they love you and be willing to tell you what's true and what's real and what's really best. That's a good influence. Devotion with intensity. And then lastly, focus with patience. Simeon and Anna, they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They were very focused on this, and yet they were very patient as well. In fact, Simeon amazes me, because here he has this promise. He's been waiting for it a long time, and the Spirit says, move into this part of the temple, and he's got to be like, is this it? Is it? I, I don't know, have you ever waited for something for decades? I'm just guessing he has, but you know. And, and then God begins to be like, hey, move over here. There's something I want you to see. I mean, you have to be like, huh? Huh? What's happening? Tell me, tell me. And he turns the corner, and there's a baby, right? It just amazes me that Simeon doesn't go, seriously? A baby? I'm an old man. What's a baby going to do for me, right? I'm going to be gone before he even makes it to school, right? That's not what Simeon does. He's like, salvation. I've seen, I've looked into his eyes. I'm good, ready for heaven. It's all I need, God. It's all I need. So patient. And even patient to the point of a, of a fulfillment of a promise to him, that, that some of us might go, that's not good enough, God. That's not good enough. Amazing. There's a value in waiting, of longing, of living with expectation. Simeon and Anna did that. I think it gave them a wisdom. It gave them a voice of influence that, that we should say was worth listening to. And we need to live that way as well. We're going to finish out our year together. Uh, not that you can't see each other the last few days here, but in terms of worshiping together, we're going we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper as the, as the last thing we do here today. And uh, so, yeah, go ahead and uh, prepare that and start passing that out. And then we'll take together in a few minutes. I have one last passage for us to look at while we're passing out the bread and the cup. In Philippians 4, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Well, I always want to know, wait, wait a second, I missed something. What, in what way? He just mi- we just missed it. In the last verses of, of uh, actually that should be chapter 3 something. Chapter 3, 20 and 21. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And this is how we're to live. Eagerly awaiting a Savior from there. Go ahead and uh, come on forward and start distributing that. We're to live, actually, strangely enough, like Simeon and Anna. As people who have been given a promise, and we live with a lot of anticipation because there's joy in that, right? 
It's not a, a, a mournful, sorrowful thing anymore. It strengthens our faith and it increases our joy to say, hey, we belong somewhere else and we're waiting for it and we believe that, that the Christ who went to the cross is a, is, is a Savior, is a King who keeps His promises and He said He would return for us. That's what we live in anticipation of. And that marks how we live. And it marks the kind of thoughts we have and the kind of wisdom we listen to. Is this the kind of wisdom that will lead me to, to anticipate Christ and all that he's bringing to my future? That's what we'd want. Well, I want to give you a moment to uh, focus here on the bread and the cup, on the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. As the one who purchased salvation and promised that he would come again, for you, as he says, that we eat this meal in remembrance of him until he comes. So, would you do that now? Let's pray together. Mm-hmm.